Awesome, awesome. Thank you. Thank you, John Mark. Um, pretty interesting days that we live in. Every generation thinks they have it the worst. But it's just simply, simply not true. My dad was born in 1919. By the time he was 10 years old, they were knee deep in the Great Depression. And, um, we've had all kind of situations in our nation that have been challenging. And, um, that's as it should be. We need to be challenged. If we're not challenged, we won't become the kind of people God really wants us to become. And that's really what John Mark was speaking to this morning, and I so appreciate that. We need to be challenged. We can't settle for Republican, Democrat, Independent, Libertarian. We have to settle for Christian. And that um, that needs to be much more profound than a political party or an ideology. It has to do with the life of the only genuinely wonderful person who ever lived named Jesus, who's living his life through us the same way we find here in the New Testament. And that's the standard. Everything else is subpar. Everything else is uh, is really faulted. But there's nothing faulted about the Son of God. There really isn't. He's the most amazing person. I can say that after over 40 years of knowing him. I'm increasingly more enamored with how good he is. And, you know, John Mark uses this word a lot, conversation. And and what he means by that is we need to talk through this, that, and the other. And I've learned uh, I've learned to have conversations with the Lord. And quite frankly, a lot of them seem to be one-sided. I'm doing the talking, but um, sometimes He does talk back. Matter of fact, He probably speaks to us a whole lot more than we were willing to uh, pay attention to. But um, I said to the Lord. I think I think I said to the Lord last night. I said, "Lord, he, he he's real to me. I don't know about the rest of you guys. He's real to me. If uh, he hit his thumb with a hammer, it hurt the same way when you hit your thumb with a hammer. He he suffered, and that's all. In the last fifteen years, the sufferings of the Lord have really." captured my attention because it's legit, it's real, it's not myth, it's not typical, it's not type, it's not shadow, it's what he really went through. And so last night I said to the Lord, Lord, when you were here before you um, were crucified, what did you love the most and what did you hate the most? That was my question. And guess what the Lord said to me? Well, what do you love the most and what do you hate the most? And I said, I don't know what I hate the most, but I know what I love the most. I love my wife the most. (laughs) And I just wanted to say that to make her feel good again today because she's such a sweet person. But really, we're not talking about worshiping a book or joining a group or signing up for a code. We're talking about a relationship with a living person who really wants to talk to us and really wants us to talk to him. Because that's, that's really one of the keys to transformation. It's, it's relational. Um, so, one of the things that has really intrigued me... Uh, and you can see 
uh, Isaiah 53, 1 through 5 up, up above us. But one of the things that's continued to intrigue me is how disadvantaged Jesus was when he came. He was very marginalized. Uh, Robin, why do you believe that? I believe it because of what we're going to read here, Isaiah 53, 1 through 5. Let's read that together. Why don't you stand up? It'll be a welcome change from not standing up. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Okay, you can, you can grab your seat there. Um, that is not a description of Jesus on the cross. I've studied this extensively, and I am convinced what Isaiah 53, 1 through 5 is telling us, particularly in verses 2, um, well, that's actually Isaiah 53, 1, 2, and 3, but particularly in the second two verses, it's telling us how disadvantaged Jesus was. And the reason verse 1 says, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, means that when the Father started using the Son in power, nobody could believe it because of what he looked like, where he came from, how disadvantaged he was. They were shocked. Who could believe this would be the Messiah? I really like that. I like the fact that Jesus had to, he had to conquer disadvantages. He, 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 he had to actually demonstrate to the world what an outcast could become if he knew how to become what he'd been called to become. You know, here's what I've said. I'm intrigued about how disadvantaged Jesus was, and yet how through the love of the Father, are you paying attention to me? The baptism in the Holy Ghost and the favor and exaltation of God, he excelled at everything he did. He was the most well-adjusted man who ever lived. I mean, come on, he had to be. He was the Son of God. How is it that the person who's the most disadvantaged can become the most well-adjusted? How is it that a person who is born in essentially impoverished conditions, who is basically um, not handsome, according to what we read, not good-looking, according to what we read, despised, according to what we read, not a part of an elite group of people that would be appreciated by the movers and shakers of his day. How could a person like that become the most remarkable person who ever, ever, ever lived? Now, here's what that does. If he could do it, you can do it. There's a witness out of the mouth of babies and sucklings. <laughs> ordained praise and strength. What do you mean 
If he can do it, we could do it. He was a son of God. Yes, he was a son of God, but he came as a son of man. He essentially gave up any edge he could have had as God to demonstrate. Really, this is one of the reasons he came, to demonstrate how people could live if they knew what it took or if they knew what their invisible advantages really were. You see, that is a major part of the gospel. He didn't just come to save us from our sins as our redeemer, which we absolutely had to have. He came as a normal person who could not cheat. He could not somehow, hey, listen, you can't mess with me. I'm the son of God. I'll build a new mountain and push you over. No, he had to do it all legitimately. He had to do it by yielding to the power of the Spirit. He had to do it himself through relationship. He had to do it in such a way that we all, when we see what really God has done, we will all be without excuse. That's the scary part. If you say, I can't do it, I'm too weak, the Bible says he gives more strength to the weak. The Lord said to the weak, say, I'm strong. Jesus himself said, I myself can do nothing. He actually saw weakness as an asset. He was a little different. His disadvantaged beginnings. I've covered this several times. Actually, last week, if you weren't here, how many of you are not here last week? Tell the truth, I know. Okay, I'm just the best way. Matt Peterson had such a great message that's on our website about um, preconceived ideas or sort of the foundation and basis for most disappointments and a lot of heartache. You should really go back and, uh, and, and hear what Matt said. It was really, really good. But what I was saying is we also have some of these other messages. But when you read Isaiah 53, when you, when you look at the disadvantage, I mean, nobody's talking about the disadvantaged Jesus. Great theologians, great students of the Bible, and I don't, I don't mean that in the sense that I disregard theologians or great students of the Bible. No, but people that have poured through this text in Isaiah 53 have basically come up with this conclusion. Jesus was utterly disregarded. He had no natural benefits to aid his success. Um, there was nothing in his personal appearance to make people like him. There was nothing particularly attractive about his personality or his temperament that drew people to himself. There was nothing in his outward appearance at all that attracted or delighted people. The impression of his appearance was repulsive. And that's actually what people have said based on these verses, based on the language. You got room for a repulsive Jesus. Why would it be important to think perhaps that Jesus could have been a repulsive person in, in one point in his life? It's because if you're a repulsive person, it gives you hope. That is really good. You don't know how good. The, we think they're repulsive. Maybe we're repulsive. Maybe that, you know, come on. I'm, I'm having fun all by myself apparently. But um, by worldly standards, he was repulsive. Men would forsake him. Martin Luther actually put it this way. Men estimated him at nothing. Now, why would I keep bringing this up? Well, I, I would keep bringing it up because, in essence, if Jesus could do it, you can do it. If he knew how, you can know how. You, you don't have to settle for who you are. Isn't that good news? 
You don't have to settle for who you are. You get to settle for who he can be in you. That's that's really, really amazing. Actually, I had this phrase come to this morning. Jesus had the benefit of every disadvantage. That doesn't even make sense. Jesus had the benefit of every disadvantage. Jesus saw every disadvantage as an opportunity to develop an inward life with his father that would make him an overcoming person in every single realm of life. He had the benefit of every disadvantage. So, how did Jesus overcome? I think he had four things working for him. Love of his Father, mentioned this earlier. Baptism in the Holy Spirit, he had power. Favor and exaltation, God set him up. I mean, when the Holy Ghost came on him, he was suddenly a completely different personality. Suddenly he could do miracles. Honest to goodness, when you read the New Testament, particularly in the Gospel of John, you discover that Jesus was a walking, talking, one-man, miracle-working machine. If you look at all the miracles in the New Testament, you go, wow. How many, how many of you looked at the miracles in the New Testament and said, wow, that was a lot? Anybody ever thought that? Wow, all the stuff he did. Here's what you don't understand. The New Testament only records 30 days of his, of his, of his ministry. 30 days. That was 30 days worth. He was so gifted. He had been so exalted. He had so developed what he knew how to develop. He was so connected to his father's love. You know, when you're disadvantaged, you're going to respond to people poorly. Anybody figure that out? He didn't respond to people poorly as a, as a disadvantaged person because he knew who he was. He did not take a poll of his friends, neighbors, or peers to determine who he was. He got that from one place and one place alone, and it was not from Facebook. It's from his father. From his father. His father loved him. He loved his dad. Jesus, you, you have to think about this. Jesus understood something at the age of 12. Some people never understand their whole lives. They went to, uh, they went to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast and everybody goes home. Apparently they were traveling like by tribes. Jesus at 12 didn't go home. He stayed in the temple. And of course it bothered his mom and dad. His mom and dad, stepfather actually. They came and said, what are you doing? He said, well, you, you, we worried about you. Where have you been? And Jesus said, well, don't you understand? I need, I'm, I must be about the family business. I must be about my father's business, it says. I must be about the family business. Really, it says this, I must be about the father's. At 12 years old, he already knew. He was already connected. He was already developing that inward life to the degree that outward circumstances could not dictate to him who he was. We're looking for everybody to like us. We're looking for every advantage in business. We're looking for every little thing we can get so we can make it, and it doesn't really, really work. Because the people you depend on let you down. You can't depend on people. 
If you depend on God, God will give you dependable people to depend on as long as you depend on God because everybody needs somebody else. But when you stop depending on God, I'll trust you, trouble's coming. Because dependence on God, knowing who you are, being connected to the love of God will make you secure in insecure situations. People will come and try to tell you who you are. They don't know. They don't know who they are. If they knew who they are, they quit trying to tell you who you are. They're trying to discover who they are by controlling you and telling you who you are. Oh, if they don't know who they anybody telling me who they think I am doesn't know who they are, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Leave me alone. I got enough trouble all my own in here in this little world. You leave your world out of my little world. I'll tell you who you are. You're the guy that's not going to tell me who I am. But see, when you see what Jesus did, when you see how he did it, by the love of his Father, by the baptism, the empowering of the Holy Ghost, if you have not been baptized in the Holy Ghost and and spoken in tongues or had prophecy or had some kind of empowering encounter, you are losing part of the very process that made Jesus into the overcoming person he was. And we wonder why the church lives at such a low ebb. We're not accessing what God has for us to access. We're too busy arguing over whether or not we should have it. Arguing again. People are, people are just, and I'm a person. I'm in this whole category I'm getting ready to talk about. I put this thing, I don't think the way some people think. And I've earned the right to think this way because of what I've been through personally, as have others of you who've lived life. So I made this comment on poor old Facebook, you know. I made this comment. I I don't pick fights with people. It's just stupid. I try to say stuff that I think might help somebody. Anything you see on Facebook that I put out there, I'm trying to help somebody. Who? I don't know. Whoever reads it. I know they need my help. I wrote down, when Joseph, I'm sorry, when Jacob heard that Joseph was dead, he was heartbroken for 22 years. That's the story of Jacob and Joseph and the 12 sons of Jacob, sons of Israel, same person. Then I said, basically, but Jacob, no, but Joseph was not dead. So what broke Jacob's heart for 22 years? It was a thought. It wasn't his son's death. So I make this point. It's your thoughts about things and not your experiences that determine how you feel and who you are. And some some beloved knucklehead gets on Facebook and tells people, Robin doesn't know what he's talking about, don't listen to him. And I'm thinking, I don't care if you feel that way, but you don't have a right to jump on my Facebooks <laughs> and tell people not to listen. So here's what I did. <laughs> Donna's cringing. 
I liked what he said about me. Because it's not what happens to me on Facebook that makes me feel the way I feel. It's the thoughts. And I thought, I don't care, whatever. That, <laughs> he did not know what to do. I could imagine myself arguing with me, and he would say, yes, but I don't think you're right. And I would say, see? See what your thinking's done to you? <laughs> Come on. That is really good. Okay, now, love, being loved, power, favor, humility. Those are the characteristics that made Jesus great. Now, here's a problem. My dad used to say to me when I would complain or not be thankful. Now, that was the dad that was born in 1919 that lived through the Great Depression. Um, he would say, Robin, some people just can't stand prosperity. Well, that was the people he was talking to. Meaning that some people aren't able to be happy with what they have, which is often the key to increase. You see, if God has given you something and you're not appreciative, why would he give you something else? Now, he does because he's so good, but there's a point where he probably won't because it's hurting you, not helping you. It's making you, it's reinforcing your sense of entitlement, which is harming you. Is that making sense? It's really true. It's really true. My dad grew up, I mentioned the Great Depression. His daddy was a doctor and a farmer. Many times his patients couldn't pay him. Many morning they'd come out the back door and find a side of ham or two dozen eggs or a box of vegetables or someone left to try to pay off whatever my grandfather did for him. But see, current generational challenges are this, the temptation to be ungrateful. You see, that's how am I connecting this with how Jesus excelled because he had the love of his father because he could draw from that relationship he withstood the temptation to be ungrateful now you know here's a problem with preaching the love of God to an entitlement generation here's let me say that again that wasn't that clear here's a problem with preaching the love of God to an entitlement generation they think they deserve it well, of course he loves me. Why shouldn't he? And and um, where's my new car? But see, grace only works at, at... Grace only does its best work in the heart of people who know, I do not deserve this. I don't deserve this. That's where grace works. You see, if you're not a grateful person, quite frankly, you just don't get it yet. It's not like add gratefulness to some of your other job skills because it'll make you a happier person. No, it's this. You don't deserve anything, ladies and gentlemen. You don't. You don't. You've got, you've got, you've got a savior who paid a price for you you could never pay for yourself to get you out of a mess you didn't even know you were in. 
that only in eternity you may discover how deep and profound that mess truly is. But see, grace doesn't work with a generation of entitlement. They think they deserve it. Why shouldn't my life be good? Why shouldn't the government pay for my insurance or whatever you want to do? Why, sh- why shouldn't, uh, uh, why shouldn't I have whatever I want whenever I want it? Why should I suffer? Why should life not be perfect for me? Life's not perfect for anybody. If, if life was perfect for you, it would not be the minute you showed up to enjoy that life. Life's not perfect. People suffer. They do. You need to suffer. And, and I don't, I, you need to suffer. We really do. We, we need to understand what it feels like to feel like other people when they don't feel good. I grew up son of the South. I've been, I've been in the South all my life. Um, I, I, I hate to admit this, but it's just absolutely true. I didn't have uh, an African-American acquaintance until I was in the eighth grade. Our schools hadn't integrated until then. But just met, met, met just great people. And see, we can't appreciate someone else's plight until we can experience something similar to that plight. Now, the first time in all my life I was ever the only white guy in the midst of a big old crowd of African-American people was when I went to a Miles Monroe conference in, in the Bahamas. And I was the only, I was the only white guy there. No, me and this other guy that took me, we were the only two white guys there. And I thought, oh, this is, this is how it feels. But really it wasn't how it feels. They were all being nice to me. So I still hadn't gotten the full benefit. But when John Mark talks about, uh, refugees and, and the aliens, we, we, we have to have some kind of experience at some point to begin to feel something other people are feeling or we won't do anything for anybody. We just want some more stuff. We just, we just, how come God won't give me more stuff? See, when John Mark was talking this morning, I had, I had thought, actually thought some very, very similar things. How many people who are really upset about this problem have ever really done anything for a different people group that were in need? I know, I, um, admire people that, that have adopted children. I admire people who have adopted children from other cultures and other other races. To me, it's the most remarkable, loving, marvelous thing you can do. But a mentality of entitlement, and I've had my own share of that. That's why I can recognize it sometimes so easily. Um, If, if you don't have effort or struggle, you oftentimes don't appreciate or respect what it is you have. And see, I could say, oh, the love of God is awesome, it's amazing, and it is, and it will solve all your problems, and it will, but it's got to work all the way down through your life 
until you are capable because of the depth and the profundity of that love and that relationship, deal graciously with struggle, with temptation, with differences in opinion, and with everything that may come at you. It's got to go that deeply in our, in our hearts. Through the struggle of his early years, Jesus learned humility and obedience. There was a verse I read out of Hebrews. I may actually have it up here. Yeah. Do I have Hebrews? Maybe I don't. Is this making anybody dizzy yet? Uh Uh-oh. Um, I can't find it. Oops. Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. Who in the days of his flesh, we're talking about Jesus. What were the days of his flesh? When he lived. When he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him was able to save him from death. When was that? In the garden. In the garden. It said he was offering up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Say that with me. Able to save him from death. And was heard because of godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Okay, if he had a father, and it was the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was facing the horror of the cross, and as he prayed, he discovered that his father was still the one who was able to save him from this, how did he learn obedience? He learned obedience because his father wanted him to go through that. And Jesus submitted himself to something he did not want to do for the sake of the love of his father and what it would mean to the rest of mankind. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Suffering and humility are the same words. You can find out how humble people are when they work for you and you tell them to do something they don't want to do. You can, you can tell how much true humility they have when that thing rises up in them and you can see it start like at their knees and get redder and redder. It hits like the top of their head and then the steam comes out like Tom Terrific from the 1960s cartoon none of you saw. But see, it took, it took that level of obedience all through that 30 year life of Jesus to prepare him for that exaltation. Listen, if you're exalted or blessed beyond your capacity to, um, manage well, you're going to implode. You're going to hurt people. How many, how many of you heard of churches that grew real big and the pastor blew up and everything? Everybody got mad and left. It was tragic. Come on. Come on. It's an old, old story. 
I want to be blessed, but I don't want to be blessed to the degree that I hurt my wife's feelings because I do something stupid or shame my family or hurt people that are looking to me to provide them with some sense of stability and, and righteousness and integrity. Why would anybody want that? But everybody seems to, don't they? Hey, Lord, give me everything I can take, and if I mess up, they'll get over it. Just give me that. Woo, baby. Hey, Facebook people, look at us. We're going to be huge. We're going to be awesome. Come Queen City Church. Ain't nothing like it in town. Looky, looky, looky. Me, me, me. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Right up until the time you take dope and run out on your wife, you don't put that out there. Hey, guess what I did last week? I committed adultery with three different people and took some dope. What if in fa- uh, what if we had to tell the whole story? How, how would any of us fare? Come on. Guess who knows the whole story? Guess who's going to bring it all out to whatever degree we don't repent? You think Facebook can run you over the man? You wait till the living God says, hey, look, I'm going to play a video of all those things you didn't repent from for the world to see just to even the playing field so everybody will feel okay about how horrible humanity really has been all these years and how good I've been to ransom them and save them and redeem them by my blood. Come on, that's awesome right there. I know that's sort of ridiculous, but uh, I'm a little worked up. Now, the reason I'm so worked up is I want, I want things I shouldn't want. I want to have the biggest church in town. I want to have the best ministry in the world. I want to have more miracles. I want to have more best-selling. I want all that. Because I'm just as big a fool as the next guy. But I'm a fool who's learned some things down. And so I've got a little bit of a monitor called memory. You remember what happened to old so-and-so when he really struck it rich? Yes, Lord. How painful was that when it all fell apart? Man, I was there, I saw it. I wouldn't want that for anything. Well, then you need to remember. Fair enough, fair enough. I want to be blessed, but I don't want to be blessed beyond my capacity to live in a way that doesn't hurt and shame and defame the gospel and my family and my kids, my church. I want to learn. I want to, I want to look, I want to thank, gosh, I've had the benefit of every disadvantage. Thank God. Thank God I've had things to overcome. It helped me be somebody instead of some old shallow personality person that only person he ever cared about was himself and nobody else mattered and wanted everybody to congratulate him on whatever gifts he had. That's such a wasted life. I love what John Mark said. Gosh, if you have a heart for refugees, do something for them. Don't just use that as another opportunity to vent your own personal angers and frustrations and resentments and criticisms and judgments. 
turn that criticism, a friend of mine used to say, into intercession for the person you're critical of. Turn that anger into something redemptive and powerful because it's really only perverted energy and perverted love. Thank you. I want to thank you, John Mark. Great word this morning, son. Great, great word. So much. Okay. Uh, I'm done. Anybody want to go eat lunch? Or uh, We do have prophetic teams. Do remember Stephen to sign up. And here is John Mark again. I'm technically the overseer, so I thought I was supposed to close it down. But All right. Let's stand up and pray real quick. Stand up and pray real quick. Um, I believe that gratefulness is not just the key to fullness. Gratefulness is the great fullness because we are full. And if we're living, we've won the lottery. And the question isn't why people have to die. The question is why do we get to live? The question isn't why is life so hard. The question is why is life so good? Asking the wrong questions. So, Lord, oh, right now, Lord, we just want to acknowledge the gratefulness, our gratefulness, the fullness of life, of breath, of goodness that you've given us, Lord Jesus. And the answer to entitlement is not guilt and shame. That's actually kind of the path back in that direction. The answer is gratefulness is acknowledging and understanding and seeing how full and wonderful life really is, even at its worst. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you because you're good, and we thank you because you've given us good things, Lord. And we thank you that we are full, full of life, strong and alive. We thank, thank you for your presence. We thank you for all the thoughts that you have for us. We even thank you for the pain we've had. We know that you don't like to cause us pain we know that you don't cause us pain but pain has been a part of us lord and we thank you that that pain has created good things or is creating good things we just thank you that you're so good that you take the worst things and you can turn them into something good and beautiful lord we give no honor to the pain or the bad situations but we give the thanks to you lord because you have the ability to turn those into beautiful things lord in jesus name Thank you so much. Thank you so much in Jesus' name. And I do want to say I really do appreciate people who spoke out about the refugees. I'm not saying that you shouldn't speak out. I'm just saying there's a greater conversation we can have within ourselves. So, Lord Jesus, do. No guilt in Jesus' name. No guilt. Only encouragement and goodness, Lord. I pray that no one would feel bad or angry or frustrated or guilty, but we would feel empowered and encouraged and excited about what we can do and who we are and what we have to say and what we have to do with our lives, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do we have prophetic teams again? Yes. We have prophetic teams. If you want prayer or prophetic ministry, meet right here. Is this the right spot? Somebody. (laughs) All right. This will be it. All right. Have a good week.